0: There is a lottery we all play when we're born. This lottery could literally mean life and death, but nobody has a choice in it. It just happens. The idea is you buy something online, and this magical machine will drive itself to your house, do the delivery, and then carry on with the business. And the need for thinking machines is huge, but in the physical world, it's it's not as big.
1: First, a quick message from our sponsor. Sourcing tech talent and delivering your software roadmap shouldn't be difficult. That's why DZ connects high growth companies with some of the best pre-vetted developers from across the world. Whether supporting your in-house team, building your dream dev squad, or delivering a project end-to-end, DZ's unique model is trusted by businesses globally to help them rapidly execute software development. Deezy is offering all UKTN listeners a 10% discount on their first engagement. Go to Deezy.com slash UKTN to access quality development teams today. Hello and welcome to the UKTN podcast, a weekly conversation with founders of some of the UK's high growth tech companies. Each episode, we will talk through the founders' personal journey, their vision for their business, and their views of the wider tech industry. I'm Jane Wakefield, and I'm very pleased to say that today I am joined by William Sakiti, a serial entrepreneur, inventor, and CEO of the Academy of Robotics. Thanks for joining me today, William. I'm a huge fan of robots so I'm delighted to know they now have an academy and I've met quite a few of them in my time as a reporter, so really excited to chat to you about this really fascinating area of tech. But before we chat about robots, I just want to start a little bit about you and your background. Now, you grew up in rural Zimbabwe, which is a long way from the kind of tech you are building now. Did you always want to be an inventor? Did you make things as a child?
0: Absolutely. Firstly, hello, Jane. It's a pleasure to be here. So half my family was in the suburbs in Zimbabwe. They were very successful. Um, We had um, two maids full-time living at home, two gardeners, and I had a personal driver who drove me everywhere. But what would happen is when it came to like holidays or any sort of break, like up to three months a year, I would literally go live with my grandparents who lived in actual mud huts. And I actually loved it. So I would be the one who nominates to go there all the time and would literally get up in the morning herd cattle uh, with the other kids and that all gave me a unique perspective on the world which i use a lot of that what i learned today
1: what, what kind of things did you learn that you sort of bring to your businesses now
0: i mean so i think the most important thing is what i call the invisible lottery of life this is such that there is a lottery we all play when we're born this lottery could literally mean life and death but nobody has a choice in it it just happens and you start life at a difficult level based on this lottery and the lottery is defined as a single question. And that question is, where were you born? So if you're unlucky enough to have been born, let's say, in those rural areas, life is just different. And it's very hard for you to, A, conceptualize a better life because there are no opportunities. Your passport, you can't just leave the country. It's, it's, you're told no everywhere. You can't just uh, go get education. Well, there are no schools in that area. So you're kind of stuck there. And so this sort of invariance or unfairness had me... Have a different perspective where you realize there is no one who's going to rescue you. We don't have a state system there where a child um, perhaps wants to start a business, you'll be rescued by the state or this benefit. That doesn't exist. If you're going to do it, you're going to have to guarantee success because non rescue, whereas the culture in the Western world is more like move fast and break things. There's no penalty for yeah. failure. Well, there is a penalty for failure some parts of the world. And so that's a different way of thinking. And so everything I do, I have to think My backup plan is a backup plan. That's a backup plan because no one's going to rescue you. It's
1: interesting you say that because actually the African tech scene is really buzzing now, isn't it? And the thing I love about it is that... The designs there are very much for the African market, completely different from the kind of stuff that comes out of the move fast and break things philosophy of Silicon Valley, much more practical. There's much more encouraging of makers and hackathons and things seem to be more community based. Is is that a scene that you're involved in at all?
0: No, I'm not. Um, You see, I have mixed feelings about that scene in that a lot of African tech is great, but it tends to still mimic the tech we have here. What I mean by this is I see, for instance, a school giving a child an iPad. If you really think about it, iPad is spaceship-like technology. Nobody knows how it works there. No one knows how to repair it. They're given space internet as well. It just works. So if something happened here in the Western world, whoever's funding it, stops giving this stuff, suddenly you go back to the dark ages. So I like the development of tech. Whereas here we have five G, which falls back on four G. If that breaks, we go back to fiber. If that breaks, we go back to dial up. If that breaks, we go back to to telephones. So there is a pure evolution of tech, and I think I worry a bit about how tech from other side of the world just influences what Africa is doing. For example, if you see the rise of these chatbots like ChatGPT by OpenAI and similar, if you ask a very practical question which makes sense here. It might be culturally opposite to everything in Africa. And these mm-hmm. considerations are taken because their culture isn't digitized as ours is here. So so you get this infiltration of wiping out people's culture and their background by super intelligent mm-hmm. tech.
1: Yeah, we'll be talking about ChatGPT a bit later, actually. I've got a, got a question for you on that. But first of all, let's talk about your serial entrepreneurship and what is it that attracts you to a particular business? Is it for you all about the idea or is it the business potential? What is it?
0: Oh, so story time. I was 11 years old, was I 10? I think I was 10. My teacher in school, we all had to stand up and say what we want we to be grow up. And I had just read a book called Pioneers in Medicine. And then there was a side chapter on all these inventors and they mentioned Edison. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's what I want to do. So I stood up and said, I want to be an inventor when I grow up. And my teacher said, oh, do you realize there's no such thing as an inventor? These people did it as an accident. So everyone, this would be an example to all of you. You've got to have a career like a doctor or a nurse or something, something where it's an actual thing because there aren't really inventors. And weirdly, through a sequence of unexpected events, I end up finding myself being an inventor with several patents. So it's always been in my thinking that I like changing things. I like creating new things. And so my first sort of playing around with business when I was about 15, I would repair my dad's friend's computers. This is before Windows. We literally type commands. They're called DOS machines. And I'd get paid a, a small fortune to fix computers and offices across the city in Zimbabwe and then came to England. Then started my first startup about eighteen, nineteen, which was a domain registration company. The concept was that Google had just started. It wasn't really a big thing yet. And people still didn't have websites. It was all telephone directors. And I thought, you know, websites, simple self-built websites of the future. And I started a company that did that and I sold it at 19.
1: And so moving on to the kind of robotics that you're now involved in, in helping grow, let's talk about one of them, cargo. It's a delivery robot But to my mind, it looks more like a car than some of these little wheel delivery bots that I've personally seen on some of the streets in the US and in Europe, and which I always think probably aren't fit for purpose. So why did you go the route of a car? Tell me a little bit about the story behind Cargo and describe for us what it looks like.
0: So going back a bit, about five years ago, I just sold my last startup. It was called My City Venue. We sold it to a company called Secret Escapes, and then I thought... What am I going to do next? And I realized the world doesn't need a faster way to book a restaurant. It doesn't need another cool dog walking up. But instead, I need to disrupt something big at scale. And it made sense the logistics industry was fragmented. So at first, I actually filed a patent for an invisible road network in the sky where drones could use to navigate from point A to point B. It was called the Sky Highway Patent. Then I enrolled in university to up my geek credentials to be able to run such a startup. And it was there that I met most of the PhDs and my professor where we realized that cars might actually be a better part of low resistance because we already have an infrastructure for cars, but it would take three years. So if we were to make a car that delivers, what should it look like? What should it do? And so forgot what all cars look like and desi- decided to design a machine with what we call the ice cream van effect. The ice cream van effect is a term I made up, which is when the ice cream van comes along, kids from everywhere run and try and come see it. And so we thought, why not have a car that looks so crazy, so fun that kids will run and come see it. And so it started in the shape of an egg, which started evolving, following natural forms to look like what we call a baby dragon. So this is very cool, looks like a toothless dragon from How to Train Your Dragon. If you've ever seen that, it's green in color, bright green, and it's in your face. But whenever people see it, they think, wow, what is that? So I then hired, was one of the best car designers we could find at the time, Paul Purchase, who's worked at McLaren and worked in Formula One. And he made this a reality into a car that is the size a bit larger than a smart car. Is actually on the road and it is street legal, it's the license plate, and it autonomously drives and delivers packages. The idea is you buy something online, and this magical machine will drive itself to your house, do the delivery, and then carry on part of the business And so, cargo is autonomous delivery.
1: And you've had some trials of this tech, and it's been used by the RAF amongst others. What's the plans for it in 2023?
0: So, for us, I've always believed in solving the biggest problem felt by the highest number of people. So, I would say pizza delivery solved, so we don't, I don't really have any interest in, in solving, you know, replacing guys on a scooter, that, that works. But you find in large commercial enterprises such as the Air Force, there are these really large air bases where it's up to a thousand acres and sometimes they have to go right across to send one or two items, but these items are critical so we worked with them to find a way to automate sending items on air bases so for us we're continuing to put these cars in places you wouldn't think of because Mm -hmm. i call them invisible technology so you don't necessarily see them because they're supposed to be there when needed and out there when they're not and you tend to see them in large commercial sites or air bases so they'll be very out there but only where they're needed most
1: now you mentioned air bases and i know that actually you Are actually headquartered in an airbase how did that come about
0: (laughs) so it turns out to if you are in the process of making these self-driving vehicles the law is structured in a way that um until this vehicle is street legal you have to have tested it somewhat and you can't really test in a car park and it became very expensive to try to find spaces or close roads just to test these cars so i read an article by james dyson saying it was impossible to buy an airbase in the uk for whatever reason and i just thought challenge accepted In fact, that's perfect. I think an airbase is exactly what we need. So I went on the Google machine and searched and searched. And a year later, we're proud to be the owners of a former RAF base. We've got our own private roads, test tracks, factories. So we've just opened it and we'll soon be hiring to expand here at an airbase in Norfolk.
1: A quick message from our sponsor. Access to high quality and cost effective talent is one of the biggest growth obstacles facing companies. DZ exists to solve this problem. In a challenging market, businesses need to focus on reducing overheads, all while pushing for meaningful growth. DZ's one-to-many model provides access to an ecosystem of hand-picked development teams, engaged on a flexible basis and at competitive rates. Visit dzcom slash UKTN for an exclusive 10% discount for all podcast listeners. It's interesting, isn't it, that we're seeing a lot of aut- autonomous vehicles being tested in not so many people testing them in air bases, but, you know, that you see little trials on the streets of Milton Keynes or somewhere or in kind of places where there's not too many pedestrians, but we haven't yet seen them properly hit the mainstream. So what do you think the kind of timeline is for mass market autonomous vehicles?
0: So I think we actually won't see that anytime soon, if at all. The reason why is nobody stops and thinks, oh my gosh, my Uber is terrible. I wish it was autonomous. We all accept that um, services like Uber, Lyft, and they're very good. I think 6 million people in, in London use, them. a lot of people use them, they're very good. But you don't wake up and think, I need this in my life. But the number of people that would happily pay to have something bought, arrived today or something so it's those places you wouldn't see them but it's the places where stuff is required to be moved to get things done not necessarily to get me somewhere because trains are good enough i'd rather hop in a train and go to edinburgh if it's a car it's not going to make that huge of a difference it's just more private and i think that's what you find i think how self-driving cars are being thought of by a lot of silicon valley is putting the technology before the user experience this mm-hmm. is why for us we see a huge implementation with sending packages from A to B because that's a lot of packages globally. Sending military personnel, place A to B, that's really important. Um, but not necessarily, I just want to go to the shop, maybe a robot cashier, a tape. I don't think we'll see that anytime soon.
1: Now, another area that you're looking into is this idea of companion robots. And you have one called Milton, which has been used in the NHS. So tell me a bit about that. And first of all, explain why on earth you decided to create it as a penguin.
0: <laughs> so as it happens, a little known fact is everything required to make a self-driving car is pretty much required to make a robot. So a self-driving car is a robot of some description, it's a computer on wheels. If you made that computer stand on two legs and put those wheels the other way, it's still the exact same thing because it has the core for what you need, just computer vision, being able to calculate trajectory, what's coming from the left, what's coming from the right. And this is a computer vision problem which combined with the navigational problems, you have a robot. So, one of the biggest problems in the medical sector is actually something called to take out. So, imagine you've been discharged from your hospital bed, or it's time to go. However, you're actually still waiting on your medicine. So, currently, you'd have to wait up to two hours sometimes because nurses are busy, people are busy. So, if there are 30, 40 people waiting, Someone we come in with a broken leg or a heart attack, and they're waiting for you to be discharged. So to speed this process up, this is something we could use automation. So exactly what we do with our cars: a car moves something from A to B. We're applying that to have robots do the same thing: move medicine from a hospital pharmacy to a to takeout to so where the where the actual patient patients being discharged. So the story of the penguin is: I am a big believer in tech should be designed for exactly what it's needed for because it should be there when it's needed after when it isn't so we actually were close to the hospital and we asked them what should a robot look like so we hired designers and a team of designers came up with hundreds of designs Then we eliminated them until the hospital chose hospital staff rather chose a penguin <laughs> and so yeah, so the penguin is actually designed by the hospital staff so that either what we're trying is buy NHS for NHS rather than say, hey, buy this bot from China, or hey, here's a bot we made. We've had a lot of collaborative sort of, what would you like? What should it do? How far should it travel? Is it pleasing to look at? Uh, is it in the way? And it's been a lot of back and forth. So the process has taken so far over a year, and we're still going back and forth to perfect it because it's supposed to be highly customised for the NHS.
1: And on that point about designing things, often robots are designed to look quite cute, sometimes human-like creating a personality seems to be important sometimes even a gender do you think that that's just because human nature we want something that looks a bit like us or something that we can kind of relate to in a machine or do you think that perhaps we should get away from that and start making robots as you said earlier that are just practical and do the job and they don't necessarily need to have a face
0: i think it depends on the application or what we are using that robot for so in the case of uh, maybe host robots that see people regularly, we do like to anthropomorphize and and, and maybe see them as a, as a person or a being. But there's something in robotics we call uncanny valley, for those that don't know. So uncanny valley is this, there's a sort of range of when it becomes too human, it kind of goes creepy. So this is why those who work in the industry, the data shows it's better to go more like a cute little animal, oversized sized eyes and stuff. However, You'd think a robot with eight arms coming out of his chest is creepy. Yes, it is. But if I'm having a surgery and there's a robot doing my surgery, I think I'm like the one with eight arms coming out of his chest because I think this is precision. This is the one that should do. (laughs) So I think it depends on the use case. The ones that face people, I think for friendliness, we'll see a shift going more and more towards cute animals. And the ones which are highly specialist will be designed to look like the scary expert that knows exactly what it's doing.
1: Mm -hmm. And we'll come back a bit to talk about the sort of wider robotics industry in a minute. But first of all, what other plans are there for the Academy of Robotics? Is there anything else under wraps that you can tell us about or any new products coming out this year?
0: So I think you'll see with us a lot more robots, a lot more highly customised robots, because we feel that robots should not be as standardised as most other tech A smartphone. Standardised, we get it. But but I feel, or we feel, is robots should be made to suit that exact environment. I mean, we go back in time, some of your well-read um, listeners would know of something called Google Glass. It was incredible technology. I think it was nearly, nearly a decade ago now. With these amazing glasses you wear, and they look so cool, and you could literally project into your eye. It's very science fiction stuff. However, the world just wasn't ready for it. It was putting the technology before the user experience and it was cool tech, but we hadn't had Instagram yet and the culture of taking photos and all that. And so this is why we feel it's important to engage with the the end user and say, what do they want this robot for? So you'll see our NHS style robot will be very different to our robots we use for other places and other factories and other things. So. I believe this is the year of the AI and the robot. AI as a product is a different subject there. Yeah.
1: Well, as you mention AI, let's talk briefly about chat GPT. Obviously, it's been on everybody's lips. This generative piece of AI that you can use almost like a very smart chatbot. You can ask it to write essays, you can ask it to write poetry. I guess for those focusing more on robotics and creating moving machines the ultimate goal would be to sort of bring those two things together with something like Chat GPT acting as the brain of robots. Is that something that you're thinking about? Is it something you think we'll see in the future? No. How disappointing.
0: <laughs> no, the reason I say a black no is we follow the evolution of technology. You find some of the most successful platforms were stuff like maybe Facebook, right, or Reddit. And then these then broke off into Oh, Facebook's photo section becomes Instagram, Facebook's chat becomes WhatsApp and hyper-focus, hyper-specialization is someone won't go to Google, they'll download an app which does just one thing and they'll use that. And if you follow the trajectory, it seems you'll have very good chatbots that live in your phone, which is different to the robot, which does things from A to D. So if you want something immediate, press a button on your phone. So think of Siri, but with ChatGPT's brain, you'll more likely have that. But when you want a robot, a robot just does things because a robot is a thing for the physical world. If you want thought, thought is a thing for your smartphone, that's one button. So that there's no need for the two to come together because it becomes another step in the cycle, which you don't actually need.
1: Surely, though, if we'd want our Alexas, not only to ask them to sort of turn the oven on, if we have a smart oven... But also to be able to sort of get things out of the oven. Surely the 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 dream of this kind of robot companion is one that many would would wish
0: for. Sure. So here's a question, right, for anyone listening. If you think of the time when we had the Nokia thirty three tens, these are the classic brick phones before the iPhone. They were good enough. And then Steve Jobs gave us the smart the smartphone the iPhone. We all thought, I need this in my life. I need it. I need it. And many people went for the smartphones. The birth of Android. So the tech which disrupts tends to be the tech where people think, I need this in my life. And I don't think I've heard anyone think, I need to have my microwave take stuff out itself. It's it's good enough. And when stuff's good enough, it doesn't tend to evolve. The best example of this is the keyboard, the QWERTY keyboard. It's good enough. And for all this time, it remains the same. Of course, you'd love a robot to type for you, but you'll type away. It's fine. So... With, for example, what we're doing with robots and self-driving cars, the places we're trying to put the self-driving cars, people need it. They feel we need this today. And this is why you look at, yes, we all kind of would love a digital assistant, digital clone, but does it have a need to have a physical body and walk around the house? Not really. You could do most of that with cameras in the right places and just that brain. So I don't think we'll see the household robots anytime soon. But we might find the arms above your stove that cook for you that we might see, but not a a physical robot in the house.
1: And what about the idea of sort of companion robots? You mentioned, obviously, that you're working with the NHS. And there is some people who believe that actually companion robots in old people's homes or even playing the role of nurses to free nurses up. We know how extremely busy nurses are at the moment. Do you think that's a good idea?
0: I don't know if it's a good idea. It's it's a model that makes sense in if you think about it. And literature and science fiction says it makes sense. I think one of my favorite films is based on that called Robot and Frank, which was literally just that. I can see a lot of people speaking with robots. But again, something tells me, I've told many of my friends um, about ChatGPT, for example, and their parents now obsessively talk to, but something tells me they seem to be okay with typing to a computer knowing they're speaking to a chatbot. They seem to be okay with that. And there hasn't been anyone asserting that this should be a robot in my house or this should be a, a thing in my house. They seem to be okay with it. And you can always tell these trends. The best one, I suppose, is to think of ChatGPT. It's technically a terrible product as a product, it's, it's actually quite. But you have to hack this way, do that, do that. But it works so well that people are willing to accept that some of the answers are wrong. You have to do this. The, it's that good. So, so that form factor of typing is, seems to be quite good. It'll be interesting to see how the, these chatbots evolve into what happens next. But I, I still foresee them being something on our phone, just a better mm-hmm. interface, like an app on our phone, because you're able to chat to it that easily, as opposed to a thing
1: Mm, And partly that's down to the fact that robotics are hard to get right, aren't they? I mean, we probably all know about Boston Dynamics and their amazing videos on YouTube of robots dancing and running through woods and jumping up onto tables. But I mean, that's taken a huge amount of money to get robots to that stage. And I've... Seen a lot of robots over my time as a tech reporter, but often they seem to be quite limited in what they can do. They've either got preset answers if they're talking to you, or they're just doing a very sort of basic dance, and they quite often go wrong. So, do you think that there's any sort of business case for them beyond? what you're suggesting for very, very specific needs and for the things we're seeing, like being used in factories or like being used for surgery.
0: Sure. I think um, with Boston if my memory serves correctly, those actions are all pre-recorded. Mm. It, it's not actually AI doing it. There's it, it a way of recording where you use a stencil or a person on a computer and then it does it out. So the agility is incredible. And there is some sort of um, adjusting, but a lot of it's just all pre-recorded. That's based on the information I have so far. It, it could be different now. I'm not sure. But again, it goes to where the needs are. And, and if you find a need, believe me, the robots will tech or find a way to disrupt it. And the need for thinking machines is huge. But in the physical world, it's, it's not as big. Uh, what I do see, however, is a time when you see assistant robots in towns, for example, yeah. helping grandma carry shopping to the bus stop. They just loiter around town. You can just ask a robot for help for simple tasks. But it doesn't go home with you, but it will help you move stuff around, help you cross the road, uh, be your temporary walker, go pick up the shopping for you, so, so stuff like that. So I think starship robots a bit larger, but that can move items around in a town for you uh, to help people in certain villages and stuff. That is what I see happening next.
1: Robots loitering in town centres. That sounds fascinating. I can't wait to see that come to reality. But I'm afraid, William, that's all we've got time for on this week's edition of the UKTN podcast. Thank you for an absolutely fascinating chat and thank you too to all our listeners, wherever you are. I hope that you've learned something today. I know that I have. To keep up to date with all the latest UK tech developments, head over to www.uktech.news. Don't forget to follow UKTN on LinkedIn and Twitter and do get in touch with me via LinkedIn or Twitter at Jane Wakefield with your comments and suggestions about the show. Until next time, goodbye from me. A quick message from our sponsor. Access to high quality and cost-effective talent is one of the biggest growth obstacles facing companies. DZ exists to solve this problem. In a challenging market, businesses need to focus on reducing overheads all while pushing for meaningful growth. DZ's one-to-many model provides access to an ecosystem of hand-picked development teams, engaged on a flexible basis and at competitive rates. Visit dz.com UKTN for an exclusive 10% discount for all podcast listeners.